The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, Subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. All right, today we have a very unusual and special guest on the Influencer's Edge. As you all know, this podcast is devoted for sales and influence to making some skrillis, some cash, some dough. However, our guest today, Jorgen, am I saying that right? It's a Norwegian name. Pretty close. Jorgen Rasmussen is a powerful agent for personal change. And that definitely is a form of influence, especially because he's is known for working with very difficult clients where everyone else fails. So let me um, just give a little bit of his biography. Jorgen Rasmussen is an agent of change and a powerful change artist. He has a background in meditation, neurolinguistic programming and hypnosis. And he teaches something called the psychological illusion model, which we're gonna take a deep dive into. He's also the author of two amazing books. Do you happen to have copies of those books that you can show off? I mean, we are recording, but are they at hand? <clears throat> not no, no, not, not right Not that's fine, but they're called, one is provocative hypnosis, the other is provocative suggestion. And if you're into hypnosis of, or influence of any kind, I really recommend you pick up those books. Uh, they are not on Amazon, except what are they on Amazon? Like 100? Well, yeah, they, they, are, they are on Amazon. Okay, they are on Amazon. All yeah. right. And so we're just going to uh, dive in. Jurgen is very pragmatic. He doesn't accept anything as true uh, or with a capital T. And I love how he thinks we've been friends for quite some time. I don't remember how we met. You were out in Southern California, I think, for <clears throat> NLP training. But welcome to the show, Jorgen. Thank you. Great to be here. So I want to dive into your journey as a change worker. You are known as someone who works with the most difficult clients. Clients come to you, they're... I don't know how we want to refer to them in a way that's respectful, but there are definitely people who, I don't know if they're on their last legs, but they certainly have not had a lot of results with whatever conventional uh, therapies that they've taken on. Would that be safe to say? Well, you know, that, that is often the case when, when people come in. I'm, I'm usually not a first resort for a lot of people. So... <laughs> But, but, but I mean, it's, <clears throat> excuse my voice, 
it's true in general, I think, when, when people seek help, they they usually haven't had much help before that. So it's it's one of those things. But I've I have had a, a fascination from very early on to working with people where traditional approaches to change haven't quite uh, gotten there. And so let's define, you, you have been exposed very early on to neurolinguistic programming. How would you define NLP in a way that's useful for changing people? Not in a way that's traditional seminar NLP, <clears throat> way in which you use it to implement change people. Because a yeah. lot of it, we agree, a lot of it is bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very pragmatic. And uh, I, I think of NLP as just like the study of subjective experience. You know, this, this basic idea, the, the, the basic idea that, that the map is not the territory, meaning that most of our challenges are due to how we kind of think about things versus the, call it the situations or the conditions themselves for the most part. And that that our inner experience kind of has a, a structure of sorts that 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 we can kind of look into our own experience and tweak it and nudge it and discover, ah, that's kind of how that works. And if I if I use my attention in this way or I, I uh, construct my experience slightly differently, then then I can have a different experience of something. So I, I, I view it as basic as that. Now, how do you apply it again? In the you've got some great stories in your books. Uh, you don't just use NLP, but you also use other modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, where you get people. But I want to talk to you about one, one of the things I think is so fascinating that you've used with your clientele, which is the devil's pack. Can you tell us about the devil's pack? And then I want to dive into the psychological illusion model and hypnosis and some other things. What is the devil's pack? Well, I, I stole it from a guy called Jay Haley, which, which is one of these uh, psychotherapists of old. But um, it's it's just a pact where I say to people that, look, I if if I'm giving people some sort of ordeal or task specifically designed for them, I will often say to them, look, I, I have something here for you that I think is very likely to work. But before I tell you what it is, I, I need your commitment that you'll do it. And I promise you in advance, it's it's not illegal, uh, it's not dangerous, and it's not fattening. You know, I, I, I added the fattening to get more female compliance. You know, they would often go unethical, dangerous, don't care, not fattening. I'm on board. It's fine. Can you tell us about some of the devil impacts specifically with some of the clients? They're, they're outlined in both of your books, but I really want you to give us some of the examples of the clients where you successfully used the devil's pack. I've done similar things, but I don't want to talk about me. I want you to dive into it. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes it's, it's just a matter of securing a really firm commitment on something. So for example, uh, one thing that immediately comes to mind is a smoker or and now ex-smoker uh, quite a few years ago who, who had tried all sorts of stuff to stop smoking. And, and uh, <clears throat> we had kind of gotten there for the most part, 
but she would struggle every time she would be out and alcohol was present. Like anytime she would drink alcohol, she would start smoking again. And uh, this, this was a long standing pattern. So I made the devil's pact with her and she was kind of political and had very strong opinions. So I asked her, you know, what's, what's a, an amount of money that, that you would really feel as a stench if, if you lost? I can't quite remember the, the amount, but I think it was like $3,000 or something like that, that she kind of landed on that that would be, that would be brutal. And, and I asked her, you know, is, is there any organization or political party that, that you just resent, that you just can't stand? And she landed on the, the Norwegian kind of conservative party because she was pretty, pretty far left in her political views. And I said, is there anyone in your life that you trust with money and who is also very invested in you quitting smoking? And she said, yes, my daughter, she's very conscientious. And she's been on me with smoking for a long, long time. So, so I had her commit that uh, that she, she, she made this, this bank account that both she and her daughter had access to. And I can't quite remember the time frame that we set up, but, but, but the setup was that her daughter was to go with her initially to these social gatherings where she would have alcohol. And if she even, if she ever smoked, she would have to pay that amount of money to, to the Norwegian Conservative Party. And, 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 and the really fascinating thing about this was that like, as, as soon as she made that commitment, there was not even an urge. Like, like even when she drank alcohol, went to a party, no matter how drunk she was, the, the thought to do it did not. Right. right. But you have one that's really interesting where... <clears throat> I think it's one where you had the person, the, the guy who is, who, there's two of them. One was the guy who is terrified to talk to women. Do you remember how you, the one I'm talking about? I've had quite a few of those, but do you remember specifically or more I'm, specifically? I'm trying to think, but we can, we can <clears throat> skip past that one. You also had one where, you had a client who you accused of masturbating in public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that, that was a fun one. And I I stole the term uh, masturbating from this old, now dead, you know, late psychologist called Albert Ellis, who uh, was the founder of Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, and he he would talk about how a lot of our anxieties essentially comes from masturbating. You know, turning our wants and desires into these musts. Yeah. So, so I, I, I worked with this woman who, who, in the UK, on stage, where I, I had the, the devil's pact with her. John Grinder had sent her, you know, one of the co-founders of, of NLP. And uh, I, I made the devil's pact with her that she would do whatever I asked her to, you know, provided it wasn't illegal, unethical or fattening. And then she, she agreed. She was very anxious and very angry and had problems sleeping. And she was, I, I can't quite remember how that worked, but, but she was one of the persons who was part of the board to evaluate whether someone would get parole, essentially, in many of these does that rapist get the early release? You know, that, 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 does that yeah. person? Yeah. 
those sorts of things. And I, I noticed, and, and a lot of her stress was connected with her job, but it was a pattern all over her life, essentially. And um, I noticed in the space of a couple of minutes that she used the, the word must and have to like more than 10 times, you know, we must get it right. We must not make a mistake. We must make the right decision, right? right. And she was, she, she was so responsive like you could see her physiology you could see the anxiety come on as she as she described this and i knew from her history that she used to be very religious but she was no longer so i'm, I'm always looking for ways how i can kind of exploit or use people's <laughs> particular <laughs> belief systems or or whatever so uh, she she tells her story and i i, I call her more reading than the book so I'll, I'll i'll use that name so i I suddenly look at her and I, I, I say to her, Maureen, didn't you know that it's a sin to masturbate in public? And I, I look at her very sternly because this is in front of an audience. And, and she stops and she gets confused and she said, what, what? And I said, you heard me. It's a sin to masturbate in public. And she goes, well, what do you mean? I haven't, you know, I must not make a mistake, must not do this. You're masturbating all over the place. And, and, and the audience started laughing and she, she kind of blushed a little bit uh, uh, with this. And I, I, I said to her, you know, as a, as a formerly good Christian, it's, it's only fair that you confess to your sins uh, and, and atone for them, you know, when, when you make them. So the, the part of the devil's pact was that if she started getting really or doing anxiety in meetings, she would have to make a public confession. So, so, so specifically, the next meeting she was in, I, I think there was 12 people in the room and, and she got lost in anxiety a little bit and she started debating, you know, this crazy Norwegian who she had this pact with. And as a godsend, you know, this colleague said, you know, Maureen, are you, are you okay? <laughs> she, she, she had this moment where she had to fess up and said, well, well, actually, I, I have a confession to make. And the, the whole room went silent because it's like confession in that sort of, yeah, for the last few minutes, I've been sitting here masturbating rather intensely. <laughs> Everyone looks at her and she, she gets embarrassed and she says, well, well, masturbating as in we must get this right. We must not make the right, we must not make the wrong decision. And exactly half the room started laughing and, and, and the other ones were like terrified. Or, <laughs> but that... That was one way of kind of using humor and laughter and, and, and a little bit of shock and provocation to break her pattern a little bit. And she she started to <clears throat> she 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 started to uh, to to turn her her musts back into wants, like you know, like really want to make the best decision, and we're gonna do our best, but you know, it doesn't have I think to be this really ties into my listenership because salespeople and professional influencers and so often they're in their efforts to motivate themselves. They say, I must do better or I should do yeah. better at making my cold calls or yeah. I must be better at following up or I'm, I must go for the high ticket clients. And it really just creates a loop of anxiety where you unfortunately disconnect yourself from your most resourceful states and, and your own capabilities. So I think it's a yeah. really brilliant adaptation of, of the technique and an example of how you could have hit, taken her 
aside and hypnotized her to get rid of her anxiety, but you didn't choose to do that. You did a different kind of intervention. And so this speaks to, for the folks at home, I think it speaks to the need to be flexible. If you're gonna really be a good influencer, whether it's for therapy or for sales or just your personal relationships, you have to be able to read the situation and be flexible. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on because you're dealing with people who are really, really stuck. Some of them yeah. even have pathologies. Let's take a, deep, uh, a dive into what you call the psychological illusion model, because this is new to me. We haven't, to be transparent, spoken in a few years, but I knew I had to have you on the show yeah. because we've had some very interesting uh, non-G-rated conversations. By the way, you don't curse, but it's a non-family show, so uh, you can say whatever you want. What is the psychological illusion model? And how is it practically applicable for people who want to influence in, in any way, whether it's therapeutic or, or influence themselves to change? Yeah. So if, if we take anxiety as an example, which is relevant for most salespeople, uh, you, you know that that typical Buddhist story of the, the, the monk that walks in the desert and, and he sees a snake and he kind of freaks out a little bit and... Uh, then he looks at it a second time and he has a realization that it's a rope. And, and, and at the moment of realizing that it's a rope, you know, his, his pulse goes down, his, his heartbeat goes down, his you know, sweat response goes down, the, the catastrophic thoughts disappear. Not because he tries to relax, but because he suddenly sees that the threat that he thought was there wasn't actually there. Yeah. So, so the, the, the framework I have when I see clients, I'll just mention that quickly to, to, to set a stage. Well, when I speak to a prospective clients, I, I tell them, look, I, I have some friends who, who do mentalism, uh, like mental magic uh, internationally and, and also traditional magic. And, and when, when these guys show a new trick, you know, I, I always fall for it. I feel like a an idiot because because I always hear from the tricks. You know, everyone does. But but the interesting thing is that on the one hand, I know that what I'm seeing isn't real. It's a trick of sorts, but but it feels real. Yeah. And and, and everything, everything I try to do to kind of figure it out has a tendency to drive me more deeply into the misunderstanding. And I, I have a tendency to link this to their anxiety or, 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 or their obsession or their compulsion. And I say, look, what you're here for is essentially a psychological illusion of sorts. It's, it's, it's a magic trick of the mind, meaning it's, it's something that looks extremely real. But if you know how to look at it, if, if you know how to explore it, you'll have a chance to discover that it, it's not quite what it appears to be. And you're, you're so, talking, so, so, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I'm, yeah. So, 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 so a bit like, a bit like with the magic trick, you know, something's going on, but it's, it's never quite what you think it is. So, so I say to people, consider what we do together a bit as if you were to, you know, join a magician backstage and through various experiments, get the chance to kind of uncover the trick. Because the moment you get the trick, it's often one of those like, ah, is that how it works? Is that how it works? I mean, you're less likely to as easily fall for the same trick. And even if you do, 
it's easier to kind of distangle yourself from it because you kind of get how it works. And I think I, I think this is very uh, one analogy I, I, I like to use is you know back in 1895 the first ever movie was shown in France Paris France it was a 90 second long clip of a train moving of towards the train. yeah and a lot of people allegedly threw themselves out of their seats to to uh, not get hit over by the train. I, I consider a lot of the hangups that people have a bit like that. Like when I say illusion, I, I don't mean non-existent. I mean, something's going on, but it's not quite what you think it is. So, so with it the sounds movie, to me, if I can draw an analogy. Yeah. So in, in a sales world, when people make an objection, it's very rarely what they think it is. It right. really is about something else. Yeah, yeah. So, so in, 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 terms of the, in terms of the train, you know, it really looks as if you're experiencing a train coming towards you and, and the feelings in your body are real, you know, the adrenaline and the cortisol and, and all that sort of stuff. But, but if you take someone up into the projection booth and you help them to kind of discover the nature of film, you, you can help them discover that, wait a minute, no matter what you think you see on that screen, it really is a blank screen and a play of lights. And, and once you kind of get that, you're not going to leap from your seat again when you think you see the train. Can you unpack and bring it down the ground and give a, a for instance, or a practical example of how this would be used or how you've used it with clients? Hmm. Well, you know, pretty much every client who comes in points their finger outwards and says, look, I have these feelings and they're caused by my wife right. or my daughter right. or my right. past or the uncertain future or my low self-esteem or when the doors close in the elevator. Like it, it really looks as if there's a, a thing out there that's directly causing them in a particular way, right? right? So what I try to do is I, I try to guide them through experiments where they kind of discover that, wait a minute, I'm really experiencing a thought. So I, I have an example from my, my, my first book, which I think illustrates this very well. I, I had a Fear of Heights client who worked as one of those you know, um, you know these poles that people have to climb, like the yeah. like the, the the electricians. Yeah, and yeah. that that was a, that was a really bad combination. You know, to have that fear of heights. With that, <laughs> right? So, so I, I I used to have one of those poles right outside of my old office, and I I told him to 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 bring his climbing shoes. And when he came in, he, he was so adamant that it was the height in and of itself that made him feel that way. And I, I try to kind of suggest that, you know, it can't quite be the height in of itself. It kind of has to be how you think about it because not everyone has the same fear response given those no. sorts of heights. And he, he just wouldn't, like it didn't resonate with him. And I, I, I tried to evoke the fear in the office by having him imagine various things and it, it just, just didn't resonate. Now, I, I had the devil's pact with them because I had a hunch it would be difficult. So I said, okay, 
get your fucking shoes on. We're going climbing. And, and as soon as he put on the shoes, you know, he, he started to feel the, because now it was real. And we, we went outside to the pole. And before he started climbing, I said to him, on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is neutral and 10 is terrified, where are you at the moment? I think he said something like a four. Now, the guy wasn't even climbing. He, he was on the ground, right? And then he started climbing and he, he went all the way up. And I said, where are you at now? Well, seven, eight, you know, nine, nine and a half. And then I said to him, you can come down now. And he, he immediately started coming down. But I, I stopped him after like a, a meter and a half. And I said, where are you now? And he said, well, maybe like a two or a one, because I know I'm going down. But, but, but he was still way up there. Right. So, right. So, so he was like at a, he was like at a, a, a two, like seven, you know, meters up there or whatever, but, but, but he was like a four on the ground. Right. So, so he, he came down as he landed, I grabbed him physically, which is of course something you're not supposed to do. It's, it's kind of, it's just, a, I grabbed him like and stabilized him and looked at him with, with intent. And I said, you were a four standing on the ground. You were a two way up there. How on earth can it be the height? I just looked at him really, really intently. And in that moment, he had like a eureka moment where he was like, fuck, you know, shit. Like, like he, he saw it. Now, we, we, we did some additional exercises, but, 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 but for him, that was the moment you did so so essentially what you're doing is a massive pattern interrupt which is something we teach in sales you often have to interrupt the person and even confuse them a little bit in a strategic yeah. way yeah and i i i, I try to in, in the spirit of milton erickson you know uh to to, to kind of organize and for those you for those you hold on just one second if you may uh if if I could, Milton Erickson is the found, was the founder of modern hypnotherapy. In my opinion, he was to hypnotherapy what Einstein was to physics. I'll second that, even though I know nothing about physics, but. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, some people don't yeah. know who, who he is. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get that. So I, I tried to organize a context, you know, use some artistry, uh, use some humor, use some shock, use some confusion. Uh, some some drama uh, where where people can naturally have an experience where, where where they can make some new discoveries. I think it's this is extremely useful if you are in sales because if someone comes to you a prospect or a potential client whatever it is and they're rigid in in their perceptions or, or their ideas you're not going to break them out of it by accepting their frame and their beliefs. And the rest of it. And it goes contrary also to the idea this is an NLP holy writ that you don't challenge is always stay in rapport. Yeah. But I, what I think, uh, what I'm drawing from the lesson you're giving is you're doing some confusion through a pattern interrupt and you're sort of breaking rapport so that he can have a new realization. Yeah. And, it, you know, rapport is, is an interesting topic. I, I tend to think of it as responsiveness. Yes. Like, like do, you, do you have, <clears throat> do you have uh, 
is is the person responding to you in a sense like i think two people can like each other a lot but 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 there's not necessarily much responsiveness you also have an instance of people might not necessarily like each other that much but but you can see that there's a there's a responsiveness there they're 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 in tune so i i i think in these cases too there is also an element of me not being afraid of their experience what does that mean well what it means i'm when when, when i see a client um i'm not scared of their inner experience so let's let's say for example that that someone comes in and mortality is an issue for them dying 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 Let, let's say they have fear of dying or something like that that's everybody but i get you. yeah 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 i i mean to, to various degrees but if i if i as their helper have strong fears around that myself and that person brings up the mortality topic i'm probably likely to to try to save them like i'm not comfortable with them so i need them to be comfortable in a sense for me not to be comfortable so i i, I think one of the things that makes these interventions uh often powerful is that i have a very clarified relationship to fear like i'm i'm, I'm not afraid of my own emotions so I can stay present with the client, even if they have a strong fear response, without needing to save them or shut down or escape. Like wow. the ability to be completely present with them wherever they are. And wow. I, I, I think this is somewhat theoretical, but, but I think there's a subtle element in rapport as in, okay, this person is, has the ability to stay present with me in the midst of the experience. And, and I think this is so powerful for people who are in sales because if you're with your prospect and you're in your head trying to figure out how do I close them or what's my next step, I, I understand that there has to be something of a process to follow. But on the other hand, you really have to be in that state where you're present and you're aware of what's going on just so you can calibrate to their cues and, and what's happening with them. Otherwise you're just, flapping your lips and enjoying your presentation but they're yeah. not there with you yeah 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 and I, I i think what often gets in the way for people is is the masturbation these these ideas that that they must succeed or must close or must get the outcome or or must not get the no the worst is merrily strongly preferring it and and going for it got it got it i love it because I've seen I've seen a lot of salespeople too as clients, you know, who've had performance anxiety and stuff like that. And that to to me, anxiety looks like a a I, I say to my clients, like imagine a table um that, that needs two legs to stand, like whatever table that would be, right? I said, on the one hand, you, you have to demand an outcome. Like like you, you have to demand an outcome where you have to demand a guarantee that something must happen or must not happen. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That, that's one of the tables. The other table is you have to have an awareness that you don't really have that guarantee. 
And if you if you do both of those simultaneously, I think you're guaranteed an anxiety response. I got it. Yeah. And and and, and, and that the the intensity of the feeling is going to be proportional to the strength of the demand. So it, it's a bit it's 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 a bit like if if you look at the whole COVID situation, like everyone knows that if you're old and you have underlying conditions, you're more likely to. To, to catch it, you know, or, or or get sick, right? But but if you look at who's anxious, you know, you have 16-year-old very healthy kids who are not at all likely to die from COVID, who have anxiety through the roof. And you might have a an 84-year-old dude with cancer who doesn't want to get COVID, but he's not panicking, he's, he's not freaking out about it. Now, the 84-year-old dude who's not freaking out surely he doesn't want to have COVID, like, like he, he wants to stay healthy, but he probably doesn't masturbate about it. But the 16-year-old but who's healthy, who's freaking out, knows that, well, there, there's a possibility that I might get really sick and die, like, like it's possible. So they demand the guarantee that it must not happen while simultaneously knowing that they don't have the guarantee. And now the mind comes in and ruminates and spins solutions and nothing ever works and the whole system goes into overdrive. I think this is really a, a really brilliant point because one of the things I have taught is if you want to be good at influence and selling, you have to be willing to step into the unknown without needing a guarantee and give the other person radical permission to have their first response to you. Right. And I think this is what makes someone super influential, not necessarily being the model of, of charisma like uh, Tony Robbins uh, or uh, sounds like I'm knocking Tony, which I kind of am, but he's a brilliant marketer and done very, very well for himself and opened yeah. people to NLP. So good on him. And I think that model of charisma cannot be everyone's outcome. They're just not, it's just not wired in. I don't care what people say about it. It's it just, not everyone can be that way and it's not healthy, but if you can instead stay neutral, walk into the unknown and not need a guarantee, you're much better off, which brings us to a good segue. You're also a deeply, uh, you're a profound student of meditation and we have the same teacher, Shinzen Young, who again, he is a genius. I think he is the meditation, what Erickson was the hypnosis Tell us a little bit about how you got exposed to meditation and also how it's helped you deal with what Shinsen identifies as a huge struggle, which is dealing with don't know, because humans want to know. So can yeah. you talk about, uh, about that, the ability to stay okay with not knowing what the answer is going to be? Yeah. I, you know, I started meditating when I was 14. And that was transcendental meditation. Right. So I, I, I got bit by the bug early and I, I, I did martial arts and I would compete in tournaments. So I would practice sports psychology techniques and, you know, get back into the ring and kind of test it. And so that, that was my first kind of uh, context for, uh, for meditation. Now you've been lucky. I, I've never had the chance to, to meet Shinsen, but I, I've studied, you know, his books and, many of his audios and 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 stuff like that and I, I think he has a great um a great model i mean 
what, what, one of my first kind of big discoveries for me in meditation after a while was realizing that, and it, it kind of goes back to experience being an illusion in a sense. And when saying illusion, not non-existence, but, but not quite what you take it to be, right? So th th this is, anyone who's meditated has kind of noticed that, wait a minute, my world seems a particular way, but, but if I really learn to focus and develop some sensory clarity, it's like, it's not quite what it appeared to be, right? So for example, for me as a teenager, I used to think that boredom, like the experience of boredom, told me about the other person or the activity or the project. And that if I was bored, I needed to do something else. That this was just one of my fundamental. Yeah. Well, and and then, the way I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and this happened when I was like 18 or 19. I, I suddenly had this like kaboom moment with boredom because I, I was meditating on the breath, which in, in some ways is like the most boring object in the world. But, but really kind of breaking it down and noticing where it starts and how it moves and the various components and and, and, and this and that. And it was so extremely fascinating, like, like a, a whole new world of sensation was kind of, kind of opened up. And I, I, I had this like eureka moment of realizing that, you know what, boredom is just like a barometer that says that the quality of your attention is low in the moment. Because, because, because I, I, I could, I, wow. I, I, wait, I wait, 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 stop. I got to process that. It's not boredom. It's just the quality of your attention is yeah. low. At, at yeah. That moment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 wow that wow. was, that, that was one of the big, like, eureka moments in my life. Because I, it, it looked so obvious that the experience of boredom directly told me about something out there as in that person is boring or that activity is boring right like it, it really looked that way to me but by meditating on the breath and also meditating on the experience of boredom like let's really explore boredom and see how it works the story becomes the, the, boredom the, the, becomes paradoxically fascinating Extremely fascinating. That that was kind of the eureka moment. Like like this is like like boredom. Like like if you really go to town with boredom and you really experientially explore it, it's like deeply fascinating. And it was just like, what's the difference? Well, the quality of my attention right now is super high, so there's no boredom. And I it suddenly dawned on me that look, people can do people people can do anything, whether it's collecting coins or or doing some, you know, mundane activity, but, but if they're completely present, if they don't have any mind chatter, if there's no seeking, no resistance, they're just in the moment, there, there's no boredom. So it, it, it just became this, this, ah, it's a signal that my quality of attention is low right now. That, that doesn't mean that I have to improve the quality of attention. I can still go do something else. But it 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 kind of showed boredom to be illusory in a sense, in the sense of like it it's not quite what I thought it was. Okay, got it. All right, we're gonna wrap up really quickly. 
Your books are Provocative Hypnosis, Provocative Suggestion, available on Amazon. Correct. I want to ask you, this is something I ask with some of my guests, so I'm going to ask you, you're a very well-read man. If you could name the book that has had the strongest impact on you in the last five to ten years, I know you read like a monster. Yeah. What would that be? Huh. <laughs> And given that I read so much, it should it should be an easy. So give me the top three. Give me the top three. Do you, do you want to make it more specific in terms of okay. when it comes? Yeah, when it comes to when it comes to self improvement or self realization or influencing others oh, you see oh. say or at least your top yeah so it doesn't so, have to be in order but what comes to mind yeah so so like in terms of like call it uh other than my book yeah yeah well i, I have that one too it's, it's it's a good book it's a good book um i i would say for anyone who's a fan of meditation like when it comes to like the, the self in a sense there's a guy called Gary Weber who has a book called Happiness Beyond Thought, which which which, which I think is yeah, I'm gonna have to check that one out myself. Yeah, which, which I think is excellent. I, I got a lot of I got a lot of mileage out of that. Um, there there's a book by by an economist called Thomas Sowell called A Conflict of Visions. It's, it's essentially about, it, it kind of explains to some extent how conservatives and liberals operate from very different visions and basic assumptions about man's nature. Um, I, I found Saul to be a, a, a profound writer. And, and even if you don't have any interest in politics, it, it's such a deep book about how we humans make meaning. And, and, and how the world can look profoundly different. Uh, a third one I would add is, is Ian McGilchrist's The Master and His Emissary. Oh, yes. Just uh, a fantastic yeah. book. I, I read it more than 10 years ago, but, but, but that was a mind-blowing. That is a big tome to go through. Jürgen, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. How do people get in touch with you? Anyone who wants to get in touch with me can can find me at provocativehypnosis.com or the Provocative Hypnosis uh, YouTube channel. Very cool. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, hopefully you'll get out to Southern California soon enough. I moved to the beautiful city of San Diego from Hell A. Oh, yeah, I've been and there. Uh, I don't know when I'll be headed for Norway's most beautiful city, Bergen. But <laughs> Is that really Bergen? Oh. <laughs> Isn't that where you're at, Bergen? No, I'm I'm in Kongsberg, right? Right. Kongsberg, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Excuse yeah. me, Kongsberg. But, but, but that that's in the middle of nowhere. Kongsberg, I found it to be <laughs> the most beautiful city in all of Scandinavia. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks you. Thanks for being on the show. We'll we'll talk soon. Thank you. The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. 
That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack of sales, influence, and persuasion. Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on the Influencer's Edge Show.